be reconciled to him. And it came through Christ's blood. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Unfortunately, one of the sad truths is that blood can be trampled upon. It can be disregarded for what Christ intended. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, um, one of the things that's true about world history is there's always been conflict between one people group and another. One group threatening to overrun another. And, you know, that can be quite scary if you're on the border. Right now, in, in, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine and Russia, you know, the, the people of Ukraine are wondering, is, is Russia going to invade? In Taiwan, the Taiwanese are wondering whether the People's Republic of China will invade them. And, and the question is, when you've got that external threat, is are we going to be overrun? Are we going to be exterminated, if you will, even? And that's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? It's a pretty, you know, when we face that external we're going to face that external uh, force. That could be a very sobering thought. On the other hand, the other thing that can be a little bit more nefarious or something that we don't expect is sometimes when there's a, an enemy within, there's somebody within our ranks that we don't fully recognize that is betraying us and they're acting as an enemy, so to speak. Since I'm a Civil War buff, I'm just going to refer to that because it was so interesting. There were spies on both sides, the Union and the Confederate forces, going back and forth. And what was so hard is you couldn't recognize who was on whose side because just a few months ago we were all countrymen or countrywomen. So, you know, things would happen like, you know, military secrets being shared or troop locations being disclosed. Destruction and espionage of infrastructure, and even false information, fake news, even. I know, imagine that. You see, in May 18, 1864, in New York City, all the papers were getting ready to run you know, their latest edition for the morning paper. And all the editors had gone home. So the major gatekeepers weren't there. But at the last hour, right before they were about ready to, to you know, crank up the, the printing press, somebody came in handing a report that President Lincoln needed to conscript 400,000 more soldiers for the Union cause. And that if they didn't meet the numbers, well, then they were going to ensure a draft in that, uh, that May. That uh, June, I should say. You have to understand, there was a, a draft effort earlier, and that didn't go so well. So a draft, you know, in the coming up would be as welcome as a new mask mandate in Rochester. Let's, let's just face it, that's how that would have gone over. It would have been a civil war within the civil war, so to speak. But the thing was, Abraham Lincoln didn't draft this. He didn't, he didn't write this. It was there 
to be misinformation to cause more conflict within the Union force. Unfortunately, that was stopped as false news, fake information. But that's what was going on. It was to lead people astray. We're continuing with our series in the seven letters to Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Jesus has a specific message for each specific church, but every church needs to listen because he's speaking to everybody. We've talked about Ephesus, a strong church, strong in doctrine, strong in, in holding on to their convictions with Christ, and yet they had lost their first love. It became just duty, or maybe even pride, for how strong they were. We talked about Smyrna, an embattled church, and they were called to endure. Jesus tells them, you know, you're going to endure, and some of you might even die. But you also have to know that I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to hold you together. Today we're looking at a church that's enduring a frontal attack, but also what Jesus is most concerned is the enemy within. False teaching that's leading people into lives that are contrary to Jesus' good news. It's contrary to his gospel. And if that doesn't change, then Jesus is going to have to come and bring judgment. In fact, he says, I'm going to bring war. It's a very stern warning. So, let me pray, and then let's have ears to hear what Jesus wants to say to our church. Lord Jesus, this is your word. We want to receive it. We want to see, receive it for the life that it brings. We want to receive it for the warning that it brings to give us life. And so, Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see. This is a very stern word that you speak. But it's for our good and for our benefit. So, Lord Jesus, do your work in our hearts. Help us to receive from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, before I continue with my sermon, one other thing, if you're online, we're going to end this service with the taking of the Lord's Supper. So if that's something you want to participate with us with, you might want to get those elements ready. So just an opportunity to get ready for that. But here we go. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church of Pergamon, right? These are the words who has the sharp sword. Sharp and double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Anapas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give 
some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only known only to the one who receives it. So Pergamum, about 70 miles north of Smyrna, about 15 uh, miles inland, and was built on a cone-like precipice. It was about 300 feet above the um, river plain in that area. The word Pergamum means citadel, actually. While many, you know, this is the Roman Empire's reigning, and while many uh, cities were vying for the attention and the favor of the Roman Empire, this was named the capital city of this province. This was the capital city of Asia, or Asia Minor, as we call it, because of its natural fortifications. So with what we've looked at so far, Ephesus might be considered a San Francisco, and Smyrna a New York. Well, Pergamum was a Washington, D.C. And the Roman proconsul dwelt there, and that was kind of like the Roman governor. That's where he made his home, and he had the power of the sword, which meant that he was given the power of life and death over enemies of the state, if you will. If he thought that someone was contra to the Roman Empire, he had the power to put people to death instantly. It was also the home of the worship of many Greek gods. There was a large jutting up on this, off the edge of the cliff of, of this uh, citadel was a, a large temple to Zeus also to Athena and Dionysus, who was the god of wine and partying. As well, and I, I get this wrong every time I say it, uh, let me slow down. Asclepoli, uh, I say this wrong every time. Asclepios, okay? That's the best you're going to get from me today. He was the god of healing, but one of his symbols was that of a snake. You know, have you ever noticed how our, our symbol for, for uh, healing in the United States is this caduceus with these two snakes on it? This is probably where this comes from. So you had a, a good amount of worship of pagan gods. You also had worship of the emperor, and this was pretty... You know, if it was big in Smyrna and big in Ephesus, it was huge in Pergamum. Um, in 29 BC, they were commissioned to make a temple or an idol to Caesar Augustus. And they had great loyalty to Rome and the emperor. And it became more pronounced when we get to an emperor named Domitian. And we're going to talk about him in a bit, but he reigned from... Um, 81 AD to 96 AD. And there's plenty of pagan activity. But the biggest conflict here is with the emperor worship. And so into this background, Jesus addresses his church. So verse 12, To the angel of the church of Pergamon write, These are the words who has a sharp double-edged sword. What Jesus, there's a communication here that Jesus is the Lord of judgment. Communication that Jesus is the Lord of judgment. You see, in each one of these messages, Jesus comes 
or is doing something. And what he comes with is an indication of how he intends to meet, minister, or even correct his church as he addresses them. With Ephesus, he says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my hand, and I walk among the seven golden lampstands. He's saying, you know, the seven stars are, are the angels of the churches. And I walk among the lampstands, which represent the churches. So I am Lord of that church. I'm the Lord of the churches. I'm in charge of the churches. And for, for Ephesus, the danger is having their possibility of having their lampstand be removed. For Smyrna, he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm beginning history and I'm going to end history. I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm the Lord of, of life and death. And Jesus is saying, I can protect your future. I can protect your eternal lives, even in persecution. So he introduces himself carrying a sword to the church of Pergamum. This is a Thracian sword, is a Thracian broadsword used by the Roman cavalry, and it became a symbol of Roman might. But basically saying, hey, you know, anyone who goes against the Roman might will experience the wrath of this sword. But something is greater here than the power of a Roman sword. This is Jesus saying, I'm coming to bring judgment on those who continue to live lives contrary to the gospel. And I am the Lord of everything. And I am the Lord of judgment. Even to those who supposedly call themselves Christian. The judgment will be fair. It will be just. It will be swift. And it will be eternal and irreversible. So I don't know about you, but the thought of thinking about Jesus coming with a sword to his church, how does that strike you? Jesus is being very sober, very stern, if you will. So this is something we need to listen to. We need to pay attention to. Number two, we see a commendation from the Lord of Judgment. Verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his home, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Let's start with that. Satan, where Satan lives, or Satan's throne. Okay? What, what does that mean? Well, various commentators said, well, maybe it was the ominous jutting out uh, temple of, of Zeus, or just the, you know, the fact that he had so many other pagan gods. But that was so true of so many other, other cities, it, it seems nothing distinguishes that from another city. Some would say, well, you know, from far away, this plateau, it looked like some sort of a throne. Maybe. I think it really had to do more so with the civic leadership of the church really persecuting the church for not worshiping the emperor. And we have to understand that Christians at this time in not saying Caesar is Lord, we're actually, and you know, worshiping other pagan gods, were considered 
atheists. What's wrong with these people? And what they were doing was subversive. It was against the Roman Empire. You know, when people went into Roman, worshiping the Roman emperor, it wasn't always because they really believed that he was a god. But it was just part of being a good Roman citizen, right? And to not do so was, well, that's bad patriotism. So, you know, basically they were being kind of considered traitors to the Roman Empire. And obviously this is under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Because there's only one Lord, and he's Jesus. But they're going to experience this frontal attack. But Jesus says, yet you remain true to my name. Literally, you're holding fast to my name, my gospel, what I've come to do. And I commend you for it. Because you're not giving in to the fear of man. And on the flip side of the coin, he says, and you did not renounce your faith, even under coercion. He says, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Church history tells us about this church member Antipas, who, according to church tradition, was slowly roasted in a big brazen brass bowl. That was his faith put on display for Christ during the reign of Domitian, who said, everybody's got to worship me. Here's the thing, though. This was a recent event. This happened, well, you know, just recently after this letter was written. These people would have known Antipas. He was somebody that was a contemporary of theirs. So Jesus is going to say, I know what's going on in your church. I know the persecution you're suffering. I know about Antipas and what he suffered. And yet you did not deny me. You did not buckle under this pressure. That thinking your lives, your very lives might be at stake and heading to a painful end, at least of this life. And this is where the word martyr starts taking on a different meaning, right? The, the meaning of the word martyr in, in Greek is actually witness. But because of this faithful witness who suffered greatly, it means, in our language, really, someone who's going to suffer for a cause. Antipas suffered for Christ's sake. And the people of Pergamum are willing to suffer for Christ's sake. They will not let go of Jesus because they believe that Jesus has a greater judgment to bring. He's greater to fear than the proconsul of Rome. And he's able to save them even if they lose their earthly lives. Again, what Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes me, even though they die yet, shall they live. And Jesus would say this during his earthly ministry, coming out of Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. I tell you, my friends, he's speaking to us as friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. 
but I, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body's been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What's happening, what happened to Antipas is what happened to some of those in Smyrna, right? Jesus told them straight up, you're going to suffer. Some of you might even die, but I've got you. I've got you. And I commend you for this. And we don't experience that kind of persecution in the United States, do we? And I'm glad. I'm grateful for the freedoms we enjoy. But if that were the, if that were the case, which is true for many of our brothers and sisters across the world, is our loyalty to Jesus so much so that we'd say, yeah, I... I trust Christ. I trust that He has me. He's got me. Even though men may rail against me, even though they may take my life, they cannot take my life because my life is in Christ. Do we trust Him with our lives? Jesus values this. He values this in His people at Pergamum. But on the other side comes here. A confrontation from the Lord of Judgment. Verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. They're small in number, but they're significant in weight. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food and sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you're not familiar with, with Balaam, go to Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And it is actually quite a funny story in some ways, because it involves a talking donkey. Because Balaam, even though he's a prophet of the Most High, somehow can't recognize what God is doing. And, and God has to speak to him through a donkey. But basically what has happened is Israel is about ready to head into the Promised Land. And the king of Moab, Balak, is very concerned. And so he wants to hire Balaam, this prophet of the Most High, to curse them. You know, you're a man of God. I'll bet you if you say the right words and we offer the right sacrifices, we'll be able to curse these people. And, and Balaam says, okay, Balaam, i got to tell you, this isn't going to work because I can't curse those whom God has blessed. But Balaam says, no, 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 no. no. Come on over here. Come on over here. Just look at them and, and, and you know, we'll offer these sacrifices and, and I'll bet God will listen to you. And five times... Five times. And then, and every time, Balaam seems to offer this word of actually blessing and, and encouragement. Oh, no, you didn't do it right. You know, so it's just, it's just nuts. It's like, and so here's a lesson. We cannot manipulate God. We can't manipulate God. That's the foolishness of Balak there. But then as Balaam's about ready to leave, he says, okay, Balak, Here's the deal. I, I can't curse these people. God's blessed them. 
But here's what I want you to know. If you want them to get, get them in trouble, if you want them to bring, you know, bad to them, then get them to be unfaithful to their God. Get them to worship a different God. Get them to do things that are contrary to God's commands. And you can read about that in chapter 31, verse 16. But we get to chapter 25 of Numbers, and that's what happens. All of a sudden, the people of Moab, the Midianites, they come out and they invite the Israelites to their religious festival, which is basically a drunken sexual orgy. And unfortunately, some of the Israelites get taken in on this. And they are sucked in, worshiping a foreign god, committing sexual immorality, doing everything contrary to what God has called them to be as His exclusive holy people. And a plague breaks out, and it's not subsided until two people die who are in rebellion. And I'll let you read that yourself. But here's the point. They are being deceived, heading toward death rather than towards life. And that's what's going on. So, Balaam, it's not as though this, this doctrine is transported to the first century. No, Balaam is more like a type. It's like telling someone, you're a Benedict Arnold. We're not saying that you're Benedict Arnold, we're saying you're a traitor. That's what's going on here. Balaam is somebody who's deceiving and leading people astray. And so what's happening here is there's some sort of teaching going on that's saying that you know, Jesus has died for our sin, therefore we're free to do whatever we want. Yeah, y- you know, what's the big deal if you participate in this, this idol worship or this emperor worship? We know he's not a real God. And I know what ha- what's the big deal if we participate and have a little fun in the drinking and the sexual immorality. But, you know, Jesus died for that. He forgave us. So we're free to do that. It's a teaching that says I'm free to sin rather than saying I'm free from sin. That's deceptive. That's destructive. That's foolish. And there were a cacophony of gods as well as idol worship that could take you down this wrong path. I was trying to think of the the illustration I can best use to illustrate this, and it comes to me from a, a seminary professor who, when he was a college student at a Christian college, was taking a religious survey amongst his classmates and was knocking on the dorms. And he knocked on one student's door and asked him about his, you know, faith in Christ. And was he a Christian? Was he trying to follow Jesus? And, and you know, as he answered, filled out the information, he's going, okay, what I'm hearing you say and what I know about your lifestyle are not adding up. And he just said, hey, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but Here's the truth about what, what I know about you. What common knowledge in the school. You're, you're a womanizer. You're kind of into sexual conquest. You're a hard partier. 
you love getting drunk and, you know, and you seem to be living a life that's contrary to following Christ. Tell me what's going on here. Oh, don't you understand? Jesus is my Savior, but I haven't made Him my Lord. I, 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 I'm going to take all the good stuff of, of His forgiveness, but I'm still in charge. I'm still doing what I want to do. And it's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to what Jesus wants to do in our life. It's contrary to what he wants to set us free from. And let me just read a couple verses from Romans chapter 6, which is, and I, which is really the, the key passage to deal with this issue. Although Galatians does a great job of it too. Starting at chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Not the old life. A new life. And how insidious this deception is. To make Jesus my sin credit card. To continue to live into a life that He's trying to free us from. It causes death. In verse 14 of the same chapter of Romans 6, sin shall not be your master. You're not, you're not under law, you're under grace. Later on in the same chapter, for the wages of sin is death. Verse 21 of the same chapter, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you were now ashamed of? Those things result in death. What's happening here is deception and leading to rebellion. The point of the gospel is to reconcile us to God. Not to lead us toward more rebellion against him. And into bondage. Into bondage. Sin shall not be your master. And here's why Jesus is confronting this church about this issue. is because they become okay with it. They become okay with it for some of their members. They're okay that hearts are being led astray. They're okay with that faith is being diluted. They're okay with people becoming slaves to their flesh rather than slaves to Christ. And an insidious soul rot is taking place within the church. And their actions are making them actually enemies of Christ. And it's sad. And it's destructive. And Jesus says, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not okay with this. And so he brings before this church correction or consequences 
from the Lord of Judgment. Verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against you, against them, with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Turn back. Turn back. Quit going this way. If this has been your lifestyle, you need to stop it. If you've been okay with this lifestyle, and your brothers and sisters, you need to stop it. You need to stop being okay with it. Warn those who are practicing this spiritual duplicity. Not out of a heart of judgment. Not out of a heart of condemnation, but saying, dude, this is what Jesus is trying to save us from. Don't go there. Don't head that direction. It's adultery against our Savior who bought us with his life. It's a perversion of the gospel as well. To say that this is the gospel is wrong. Yes, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I praise God. And there's no way that you or I are going to be good enough. We're not going to stop sinning in this lifetime. And we need, we need to, you know, when we find ourselves sinning, we need to repent of that. But my point is, to live a life that's just saying, hey, now I'm free to do whatever I want, is in contra- contradiction to the gospel, to what Jesus came to do. And if I'm repeating myself, good, because I want you to hear it. If this is where you are, you need to change. And I'm not telling you that, Jesus is telling you that. I'm not angry or mad, but this is very, this is very serious, and I want you to hear it. Because Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. He says, otherwise I will soon come to, to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to come. And I think this is speaking about the eminence of Jesus' return, which will be sudden and swift, and there'll be no do-overs. It'll be like, oh, okay. Like a thief in the night. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for those who are studiers of prophecy and want to see you know, where, where world you know, events are going, but I'm going to tell you, he's going to come and we're, we're still going to be surprised. We're still going to be surprised. But are you ready, is the question. And he says, and I'm going to come with a sword. Sword of my mouth. This is bringing judgment. That's what the sword stands for. Let me just read a little bit what Jesus will say later, later in this, uh, well, the, the picture that's painted later on in this same book, in this same letter. This is in chapter 19, verses um, 11 through 16. Then I saw, standing open there before me, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped, dipped in blood, and his name is Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on, on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, 
which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Skipping on to verses 20 and 21 in the same chapter. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who performed signs on its behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake burning of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, that is Jesus, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now that is a graphic picture, folks. I don't know about you, but that is a very sober thing to think about. Of those who are in rebellion against Christ. And he's saying, this is the kind of judgment is going to come for those who trample the blood of Christ. Whether you're using Jesus as a sin credit card or whether you're rejecting it completely. And this is why this is sober. And we need to hear. And if there's somebody in our midst that needs correction, I pray that you would hear it with love, not with condemnation. But Jesus is very serious. This is why he writes this letter. To live in such a way, to say, I'm free to do whatever I want, is to align yourself with Satan. And I'm not talking, let me be very clear, I'm not talking about living a perfect life. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not even talking about if you're struggling with a sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just saying, hey, I can do whatever I want. It's continued rebellion against Christ. It's continued rebellion against the living God. And the Word of God here speaks the Word of judgment. And again, it'll be swift, final, and eternal. Here's the question. Will it be surprising? Will it be surprising to somebody? But wait a minute, I said the prayer. I raised my hand. I went down the aisle. What does your life say? What does your life say? Jesus says very plainly. There are going to be some people who say, Lord, Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. What sad words to hear. This is a sober message, folks. I don't even really like preaching it in some ways. But I do like preaching it. Because if somebody is living this this direction, they need to repent, they need to turn around. Lest you be deceived. Lest you face the Lord's judgment. I don't want that for you. And frankly... 
I will tell you you're living in bondage if you're living that way. You're living in bondage is what Jesus wants to set you free from. So I want to encourage you to turn back, to repent. And here's the thing. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that says, you've gone too far. No, no, no. You've crossed the bridge too far. Do not believe that lie. Jesus has told us through his apostle John that if we confess our sin, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't believe the lie of, of the enemy that says you've gone too far. But hear the word, repent. Turn back to him. Turn back to him. And this ends with a clarion call from the Lord of Judgment. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is making His will known to the churches. Are we listening? To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Those who are victorious are the ones who have repented, who've obeyed, who've responded. That's who's victorious. Who have their faith, their life aligned on Christ alone. And they said, and he says, you'll receive hidden manna. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus. God brings his people out into the wilderness. There's nothing out there. There's no Walmart. So God has to provide food for them, bread for them. They call it manna. The word manna means, what is it? Because it was this flaky stuff on the ground that they gathered each day, six days a week, twice as much on the, on the day before the Sabbath. And they gathered it and God provided for his people for 40 years years in the wilderness. That's pretty amazing. And so they were commanded actually to take this manna at a certain point and put it inside the ark so they'd have this reminder. Well, if you're familiar with Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a big question. Whatever happened to that box? Whatever happened to that ark? And truthfully, we don't know. We don't know. But if you listen to the apocryphal teaching of Maccabees Second uh, Maccabees 2, 4 through 7, the prophet Jeremiah, before Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Jerusalem, took the ark and they hid it at the base of Mount Nebo, which is the mountain that Moses looked over at before the children of Israel entered the promised land. It's hidden there. But we don't know that for, for certain. I'm not sure that's true or not. But that's where that hidden manna is. And actually, when we get to Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, the ark actually appears again in a, a, a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. So the ark has some rule to play. But the, the question is, what is this manna in? Where is it? Some would say, well, it's, it's pointing to Jesus as the bread of life, as he revealed himself in John uh, 
5.35. I suspect it's just receiving pure spiritual food from the Lord because He is the source. Versus contrasting the undefiled or defiled, unclean food of the pagan altars or the things that this world wants to feed us. But it's some sort of spiritual nourishment that Jesus wants to give us. Also, you receive a white stone. I just happen to have one in my pocket here. Just happen to have one. Actually, this is a a little stone that just has a a verse on it. It says, trust in in Him at all times, from Psalm 62, 8. But these white stones during this time were actually given to somebody saying, hey, I'm having a banquet at my house. Give that stone and you'll be admitted. Or also, it was also used sometimes as a token, as a coupon for receiving food. It was also used sometimes, given to a, a victorious gladiator when, when he was, you know, kind of at the end of his career. And they're saying, hey, this guy shouldn't have to fight anymore. So they gave him this kind of as a pension. Or he ever he showed up, he showed the stone and he would receive food. I think what this is speaking to, at least culturally, what this church understood was, this is a sign of admittance. You're welcome. We want you here. And in fact, we're going to feed you. We're going to take care of you. But you're welcome. And you're going to be nourished here. Some interesting other things about this. On this stone is written a new name. A new name. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we do have a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, but the new has come. There's also a sense of vindication. This Taking this from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. The nations will see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. So all those who said, what a fool you are to follow Christ. There's a a public vindication. But last of all, it says this name is only known by the one who receives it. Did you notice that Jesus has a similar thing said about him in in what I read in chapter 19? Just a thought. This is my best guess, folks. He's given you a new name because only you has written his unique story in you. His unique purpose for you. And it's for you. We're made in the image of God. And we're so alike, but yet he sees each one of us as individuals. And each one the story that he's writing in each one of our lives. What a wonderful thing to think. What a wonderful thing to understand. That he is intimately involved with each one of us. And he'll give us a new name that's unique to us, unique to how he worked in our hearts and our lives. Folks, sometimes it's, it's easier to brace yourself for external 
conflict. Sometimes it's harder to discern the enemy within that's deceiving you. May the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And understand once again that Jesus came to free us from sin rather than giving us freedom to sin. And with that, we're going to head into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, remembering what He did, how He expensively spent Himself 